0: Page 1162, 1162. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 to 10. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
1: be to God. Let's just open in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come before you in praise and in worship. We know, Lord, that your word, the word we will look at, is the word of life. We pray that you will apply that to our hearts and our minds. We ask that you will speak to all of us through your word, and we ask this in your name and for your glory's sake. Amen. Now, last week, if you were with us, John Ellison preached the first of a two-part mini-series on the return of Jesus as God and judge. And today is part two. And in his sermon, John focused on what will happen when Jesus returns, when we all face him. John spoke about the fact that Jesus' return will be personal, he will come in person, and it will be visible. He spoke about the fact that the resurrected dead and those alive at the time, so everybody, will face him as God and as judge. This morning, we come to the conclusion of the miniseries, part two. So John looked at the event. Today, we look at the problem. And the problem that that gives us, and it is a huge problem because, quite frankly, we're not, fi- we're not ready to face Jesus Christ as God and judge. We're not ready to face it. Douglas Copeland is the author of Generation X, which is a book that you might recall had a significant impact in the early 90s when it was released. I'd like to read you the closing paragraph, not from Generation X, but from another book that Douglas wrote entitled Life After God. And this is what he said at the end of his book. Now here is my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart, I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you are in a quiet room after you hear these words. My secret is that I need God that I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem capable of giving, to help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness, to help me love as I seem to be beyond being able to love. It's a striking ending to that book. And Copeland realized what we all actually know deep down. And what we know is that we cannot, of ourselves, be what we are meant to be. We all need God. I'm sure you'll agree after hearing the quote that I read that there's a sense and a feeling that he knows that there's a gulf between him and God which cannot be bridged. There's a gulf between us and God which cannot be bridged. It's a gulf none of us can bridge. It's a gulf between us as flawed, broken, sinful human beings and a perfect, totally pure and spotless God with absolute standards. It's a gulf that needs bridging and it can only be bridged through reconciliation between us and this God. We're not ready to face a God who is of course loving and kind and gracious but at the same time is also perfectly just. It's a God we've rejected throughout our lives. It's a perfect God who can't brush away the sin that's within us. It's a perfect God who demands justice for every sinful act we've committed, every thought, every word, and every deed. Let's pretend that some of you went to Festival Place on Black Friday. I'm sure you did, some of you. But let's pretend that instead of buying coats and hats and gloves and big screen TVs and whatnot that you went to do a survey and let's pretend you only had one question on your survey, namely this, do you believe you're bad enough to be denied access to heaven, yes or no? Do you believe you're bad enough to be denied access to heaven, yes or no? How do you think most people would respond, those that were willing to answer the question? They'd say no, right? I'm not bad enough to be denied access to heaven. But that's not the Bible's view. If they knew the Bible's view, they would probably reject it as being harsh and archaic and puritanical. Surely we're good enough. Or surely we can at least kind of compensate for our mistakes by doing good things, right? But that doesn't work. That's not the justice that God requires, that's not the justice that God demands. Trying to compensate is a never ending treadmill that will never give you peace. Most people eventually get to the point where they put that accusing voice inside into a box in a cupboard and they ignore it because they can't face the reality that Copeland honestly faced. That at the end of the day we know, just like Copeland knew. The constant sense of knowing that we can't be what God expects us to be, does not go away. There's an illustration I'd like to use to prove the point, which I've used before, but it bears repeating. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, Death in the City, conducts a thought experiment. And he uses it to prove that when it comes to thinking about God as our judge, then we all have an innate sense of the truth. And this is what he says. He says, let's pretend for a moment that when a baby is born, an invisible tape recorder is placed around its neck. This tape recorder records only moral judgments, every moral judgment that the person makes throughout his or her life. Finally, the person stands before God at the day of judgment and says, I was a good person, and it's unfair of you to judge me according to your standard. You should judge me according to my standard. So God looks and he says, very well, let's do that. And he reaches down and he presses the button on the tape recorder. And the person hears their own moral judgments over the years, spilling out one after another, after another, after another. That was wrong. That was bad. That's unforgivable. You shouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that. And it goes on and on and on and on. Thousands of moral judgments. And eventually... God turns to the person and says, on the basis of your own words, have you kept this standard? And there is silence. We're happy to bind others to our standard, aren't we? But there are standards which we could never live up to ourselves. Now, imagine how much greater our shortcomings are by the standards of a perfect God, one who has the right to judge, one who is the creator, who is perfectly entitled to hold us to a perfect standard. That's why David, in Psalm 51, says what Jefferson quoted earlier. I didn't know he was going to quote that. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak, and justified when you judge. It's also why Paul says what he does in Romans 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. All of us, regardless of the culture or the time we live in, know that there's a God and know that we are guilty. We know, and we'd run a thousand miles to avoid being judged by what's on our personal tape recorders, never mind by what's in the book of God. So we're not ready. That is the problem. Regardless of how good we think we are, we are not ready to face a returning Christ who comes as judge and as God. Unless there's a reconciliation, we are not ready. Now, if we know that, if we have that realization that we have this terrible dilemma, it should, and it does sometimes produce a sense of remorse, right? A sense of grief, a sense of sorrow, Realizing the truth of our situation does sometimes have that effect. I heard a fascinating interview a few days ago on a program called Unbelievable. It's transmitted on Saturday afternoons, I think, on Premier Radio. You can also find it on on the website, and there's a podcast. And the host is a guy by the name of Justin Brierley. And what he does is he brings Christians and atheists and Muslims and Agnostics and everybody together to have discussions and conversations about various topics. It's a very good program. And Justin recently interviewed a guy by the name of Guillaume Bignon. To any French friends here, please forgive the ease with which a South African accent completely destroys the beauty of your language. At least I didn't say Guillaume Bignon, right? Guillaume was born and raised in Paris. And until a few years ago, he was a staunch atheist. He was living a pretty immoral life. But then a number of totally unexpected and intriguing things happened to Guillaume. And those things which happened to him, which he did not expect, led him down the path of exploring Christianity. And he eventually got to the point where he just threw his hands up, prayed to God, and he said this. Okay. Okay. These things are starting to make sense to me, but I'm going to need you to reveal yourself to me in a very explicit way if I'm not going to make a fool of myself. It's a reasonable prayer, right? Pretty direct, but pretty reasonable. And God answered. But not in the way that Guillaume had expected. What happened was that God grabbed his conscience sensitivity dial, which had always hovered at around three to five, And he spun it around to 100. And this is what Guillaume said. All of those things I had done came straight up in my face and I was struck with an intense physical pain from the guilt. Suddenly, all the things I had been reading and talking about made perfect sense. Now I understood the gospel. Jesus died on the cross so that he could pay the price for my sins. And so I received that gospel, the good news that I don't gain my salvation by my good works, but by simply placing my faith in Jesus. That was a light bulb experience. Suddenly, I understood. I told God, I'm giving you my life. I receive the sacrifice of Jesus by faith alone. And from there, the guilt just evaporated. Every trace of guilt departed, and I experienced a spiritual renewal, knowing that I was forgiven and that I had experienced the living God. Just like Guillaume, we're all guilty before God. When the truth hits us, when we acknowledge it, it's appropriate to feel that guilt, to feel sorrow, and to look for forgiveness. But here's the question. How did Guillaume know that the feeling of sorrow wasn't misplaced, wasn't ill-formed? How did he know that it was a godly sorrow, as it says in the verse, and not a worldly sorrow? Now that verse on the back of the service sheet at the top raises a worrying question, and it's a question that any Christian has felt at some time. I certainly have. Is the sorrow that you feel godly, as it were, or not? For godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow produces death. Coming face to face with the reality of my sin before God should and must produce sorrow, regret for my sin. But is the feeling of regret I have what Paul calls godly sorrow or is it what he calls worldly sorrow? Clearly there are two kinds of sorrow. There's one that results in salvation, in eternal life, and there's one which results in death, eternal death. One results in reconciliation with God and being ready to face Christ when he returns, and one which results in condemnation. So the question is, how do I know? How do I know whether the feeling of sorrow I have because of my sin is godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? Now sometimes the best way to grasp the truth is to look at an example, to see it lived out. So we'll look at two very comparable individuals that many of us will be very familiar with, Judas and Peter. Please turn to Matthew 26, page 996 of the Church Bible. Matthew 26. <clears throat> and this is the account of the Last Supper, and Jesus eating with his disciples. Reading from verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. And as we know, Judas does go on to betray him. Turn over to chapter 27, reading from verse 3. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Judas sees what comes of his betrayal. He's seized with a feeling of intense remorse, and he hangs himself. He commits suicide. Now let's look at Peter, which is all happening at around the same time. So turn back to Matthew 26, reading from verse 31. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Look at verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath, I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them because your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. And Luke recalls that at this point, Jesus looked at Peter, and he saw him. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Judas and Peter are both warned by Christ that they will disown him. They both go ahead and do just that. They both acknowledge their sin. They both feel tremendous guilt. They both express regret and remorse and sorrow. Judas never finds reconciliation and peace. Peter does. What's the difference? The difference is in the source, the center, the root of their sorrow, and in the result, the fruit of their sorrow. It's in where the sorrow came from and it's in what it produced. That's what determines whether it's godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. And that's what we're going to look at for the rest of the time this morning. Sorrow's root and sorrow's fruit. Now to ask the obvious question, what does he mean by godly sorrow? There are two possible answers. Firstly, is godly sorrow sorrow which originates with God, which is sent by him? It's godly in the sense that it is from God. Or is godly sorrow that which comes from right and pure motives? Godly in the sense that it is good sorrow. Or does he mean something wider than that? Wider than just sorrow from God and sorrow which is good? And I think he does. I think he means sorrow which is from God, yes. He means sorrow which is good in God's eyes, yes. But he means more. So firstly, we know that godly sorrow is sent from God. He says so in verse 9. You became sorrowful as God intended. It was God's intention that they would feel sorrow and grief. And secondly, the literal translation of that phrase, godly sorrow, is sorrow according to God, or sorrow aligned with God, or sorrow in accord with God. So you could read the verse as sorrow that is in accord with God produces repentance, which leads to salvation, but worldly sorrow produces death. Now, a helpful way to think about this is to ask, what's the reference point or what's the center of that sorrow? And there's a quote from Archbishop William Temple at the bottom of the service sheet, which I found very helpful. He once said this, speaking about a very self-centered life. He said, I am at the center of the world I see. Where the horizon is depends on where I stand. And that's the fundamental question. Am I at the center of the world I see, so that where the horizon is depends on where I stand? Or is God, Christ, at the center of the world I see, so that where the horizon is depends on where he stands? Is the sorrow because of the fact that what I've done is a slight against God, against Christ, and I know I cannot win his approval and his favor in my own strength and on my own merit, as it was with Peter, godly sorrow? Or am I at the center of the sorrow? Is the cause of the sorrow the fact that I've lost everyone's approval because of what I've done, and I can't face the fact that there's no way that I can get it back? Is my sorrow because of the shame and the embarrassment and the disappointment and the hurt in my eyes, as well as in the eyes of those whose approval I crave, as it was with Judas, worldly sorrow? which is it? And let's press that a little bit further. If it's the case that my grief and sorrow are with reference to myself at the center, then even that grief and sorrow itself arises from an impure sinful motive, from sin. If my grief and sorrow and tears have me at the center then even the sorrow and the tears themselves arise from sinful, impure motives. Because I am at the center, and where the horizon is depends on where I stand, not where God stands. Sorrow, in which I am at the center, is worldly in the phrase that Paul uses, not just because it results in death, but because by its very nature, it is of the world. It is of our sinful nature. So even our regrets, even what we feel to be good and pure and right acts are shot through with impurity and are shot through with impure motives. And Isaiah puts it like this in chapter 64. He says, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Now, nowadays, that's hard to swallow in our culture in the time in which we live. But it's only hard to swallow if you have a limited view of just how holy God is, or if you have a limited view of just how pervasive and deep the sin within all of us is. It's at a fundamental level. It's at the core. It's deep within our heart. It affects our judgments, our motives, our will, our emotions, everything, including the motive and the drive behind the sorrow that we have. By God's grace, it's restrained in its power, but it remains pervasive in its reach, in its extent. It affects everything. So is my sorrow a godly sorrow, or is it a worldly sorrow? The first question is, What's at the root of it? Is it sorrow that is in accord with God? Sorrow that has had God at its center and at its root? Or is it not? The second thing to consider is what sorrow produces its fruit. Now, it may help to first think about what sorrow does not produce. Right? Sorrow does not produce a new heart. The word heart in the Bible refers to your control center, not just to your emotions and how you feel. It refers to your mind, to your will, and to your emotions, your heart, your control center. God through his Holy Spirit gives us a new heart. A new heart from God precedes and comes before sorrow and repentance, not after it. Sorrow does not produce a new heart. Sorrow does not produce forgiveness. God doesn't forgive you because you feel really, really bad about something you may have done. God forgives you because Christ took the penalty for your sin. He forgives you once you've put your faith in the Savior, in what he has done. You can't earn his forgiveness, not even through sorrow and regret and remorse. And thirdly, sorrow does not produce a clear conscience. A clear conscience results from being made clean, from being declared just because of what Christ has done, when his righteousness, his good deeds are applied to your account, when that great exchange takes place, your sin for his perfection. So sorrow doesn't produce a new heart. It doesn't produce forgiveness, and it doesn't produce a clear conscience. Godly sorrow does, however, as Paul says, produce repentance. But please notice they're not the same thing. They're easily confused. Godly sorrow produces repentance. Not godly sorrow is repentance. It's easy to get the two, sorrow and repentance, muddled up. And even some of the Bible commentators do, which is surprising. But it's understandable, right? Because my natural reaction at home, in front of my family or at work, or wherever, is that if I've expressed remorse and sorrow about something, then it would be nice to be pardoned, because I felt kind of bad, so, you know, surely that's enough. It's a natural reaction. They seem to go together. There's a lady by the name of Christina Knapp who writes a blog about parenting. She's got two little girls. And in one of her entries, recent entries, she says this. Once, while doing something bad cartwheels in the living room one of my daughters kicked the other in the head The kid who got kicked burst into tears Why? she got kicked in the head The other one screamed Sorry, sorry, sorry and then she burst into tears Why? Because her sister wouldn't take her sorry But you kicked her in the head, I explained, checking the first one's skull for lumps and fracture. I'm sure it hurts. But I said, sorry, my other child wailed in angry despair. I'm sure you've all heard that before, many of you. Was there true repentance after all of that sorrow? I don't know. Likely as not the next day there were cartwheels in the living room and another kick in the head because that's just what happens, right? The point is, sorrow is not the same as repentance. Rather, it produces, it creates the fertile soil for repentance. Now, some of the confusion undoubtedly arises because we don't know what or understand what repentance actually is. When you look at passages like Acts chapter 11 and 2 Timothy chapter 2, then you soon realize that repentance is above all things a gift. It's a gift given to us by God. In those passages, they both talk about God granting repentance. It's a gift from God which springs from a new heart. It's not something we can conjure up by ourselves by feeling really bad about what we've done or said. The original word for repentance, metanoia, the Greek word, is a military term, or comes from a military term, and it means a complete switch in direction. I've got this vivid memory when I was in the Army of standing on the edge of a parade ground where we were competing against other platoons in a military drill. I think it's called square bashing in the UK. And I still remember it very clearly. We were standing there in our platoon at ease, confident, because we thought we'd won right? And there was one platoon doing their final drill. And I was standing close to the edge of the parade ground, watching them come to the end. And what I saw made me realize that we would come second, which we did. They were very good. At the end of their drill, that platoon of 30 men acknowledged a command. They executed an about turn in which I saw everything about them perfectly redirected in unison. Their rifles, their arms, their legs, the backs of their boots, all lined up perfectly as one as they swiveled, stamped their boots, and set off in the opposite direction. That's repentance. Repentance is an about turn, a complete about turn, in acknowledgement of the truth and in which everything is redirected, my mind, my will, my emotions, my thoughts, and my deeds. What happens is that God gives me a new heart. I see and I acknowledge my sin. It causes distress, it causes deep sorrow, there is repentance and change, and there is a complete change in direction. Heart, acknowledgement, sorrow, repentance. Now, if you want to capture the spirit of this, You look at a psalm like Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. His prayer is, Give me a pure heart, O God. Give me a renewed spirit. Then I know that you will not despise my broken and contrite heart. You will not despise my repentance. You will welcome it. True repentance is a gift from God. It's a complete change. And it is the fruit of godly sorrow. So that's how we know if our sorrow is ill-formed and misplaced or not. We look at its root and we look at its fruit. If my sorrow's root is Christ with him at the center, and if my sorrow's fruit is a repentant heart which results in faith and belief, then I know it's godly sorrow. The root is Christ and not me. The fruit is genuine repentance. The result is salvation and eternal life, and I would never regret that sorrow. But if that's not the case, then it's a worldly sorrow. It's a sorrow which results in nothing but eternal death, eternal separation, and me having to face the reality of paying the price for my own sins. I'd like to make a few comments before we close, so please turn back in the passage to 2 Corinthians 7. It was page 1162. I'd like to tell you a bit about why Paul said what he did, or wrote what he did. So Paul had previously visited this church in Corinth. And they didn't support him when he confronted a number of false teacher, teachers who had infiltrated the church. Okay? They didn't rise up in support of him. They kind of just stood back. And that obviously caused him huge distress. And after he'd left them, he wrote them a stinging letter of rebuke. And he gave the letter to Timothy, and he asked Timothy to hand-deliver the letter to them. We don't have that letter. It's not 1 Corinthians. It's been lost in time. And he was worried about how they would react when they received the letter. He was worried that they would reject his message. He regretted that what he wrote had actually hurt them. And he was anxious and even neglected some of his other obligations. And he traveled to try and find Timothy. He traveled quite a distance because Timothy hadn't returned when he was expected. And fortunately, Timothy eventually comes back with the good news. They'd accepted the letter. They'd received it positively. They'd received it humbly, and they'd acted accordingly. And Paul, overjoyed and relieved, writes this in verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it. I see my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed by us in any way. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So Paul was happy that they were grieved. He was happy that they experienced great sorrow, not because of the sorrow or that experience itself, but because it was intended by God and because it then led to repentance. And there's a lesson in this for all of us. God intends you to feel grief and sorrow for your sin so that you will repent. So don't hesitate when you're looking at this repentance and you're thinking about the trauma of facing your sin, of facing a grieving heart, and of facing a complete change. Don't be tempted to shy away and to put it in a box somewhere in a cupboard and avoid going there. Nobody wants to feel miserable. Nobody wants to acknowledge that all we can bring to God are filthy rags, as Isaiah said. But the lesson for us is not to shy away from the remorse and the sorrow and the grief that comes from recognizing our sin before God, but to embrace it. To accept that it's part of the process of repentance and reconciliation, which then takes us through to salvation. To embrace it knowing, as Paul said, that we'll never regret it because of the fruit that it produces. It's like Luke said in Acts chapter 3. He said, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. The result is a wiping out of your sin, no condemnation, new life, times of refreshing, no regret. That's what godly sorrow ultimately produces. Repentance, followed by reconciliation, but it's not a one-off. You may have noticed that the verse on the back of the service sheet is slightly different to to the verse that was read to you from the translation in the the church, from the translation we use. It says, produces repentance and produces death instead of brings. Now, the reason I chose that translation is that the term used there is an agricultural term, conveys a sense of soil being continuously prepared, year after year after year, never ending. Not as a one-off which brings repentance and that's the end, but as a daily acknowledgement of sorrow and as a daily recognition of our position before God, as a daily repentant change. And you can see it in the letter. Paul's obviously writing to Christians And he assumes that that the acknowledgement, that the sorrow, and that the resulting repentance are an ongoing reality in their lives. That's what he assumes. It's not a one-off. It's a day-by-day thing. I've quoted a lady by the name of Rosaria Butterfield a number of times before. She used to be a tenured professor of English at Syracuse University in the U.S., And as a lesbian, she was a leading advocate for gay rights. And she said this after she became a Christian. And it almost sounds like a comment on Guillaume's experience, but it's not. I don't think they've ever met. She writes this. Of course, there's only one thing to do when you meet the living God. You must fall on your face and repent of your sin." Repentance is bittersweet business. Repentance is our daily fruit, our hourly washing, our minute-by-minute wake-up call, our reminder of God's creation, Jesus' blood, and the Holy Spirit's comfort. Repentance is the only no-shame solution to a renewed Christian conscience because it proves the obvious that God was right all along. And once you know that, once you experience that, you're ready and you're prepared to welcome Christ when he returns as God and as judge. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you that you will return, that you will return victorious as God and judge of all humankind. But thank you that you mercifully and graciously have provided a way for us to be ready, to be prepared for when you do return. Thank you that through sorrow for our sin, we can know reconciliation. We can know repentance. We can know salvation. And we can know the reality of being truly, completely, and utterly refreshed in you. We thank you for all these things in your name. Amen.